Before we dive in, I just want to say thank you so much to all of you that volunteered uh, over the last, this week, helping pass out 1,200 meals. That's pretty amazing. A bunch of you, we handed out six, 60 turkeys, so you cooked all those up, and a whole bunch of you volunteered packaging meals and delivering them, and thank you for making an impact here locally. And in case you missed last week when we announced, uh, thank you so much to all of you that so generously gave towards Outpour Movement. Uh, we threw out a big goal of $40,000 toward their community outreach center. You guys blew past that and raised over $110,000. And that's amazing because, yeah, because that's gonna allow them to completely finish their community outreach center and move on to some of the other building projects. And so, um, pretty big deal. And I just wanna say thank you so much. It is a privilege to pastor such a generous and um, kingdom-minded congregation. So thank you guys. All right. Hey, we are uh, going to dive into the message. And if you're joining us for the first time in a while or for the first time, we have launched a series in the book of Isaiah that's going to bring us up to Christmas. This is our, our Advent series. And to get us there, I'm going to tell you a little story from uh, when I was a bit younger. Uh, I took off with a good buddy of mine. We did this little backpacking trip, and we ended up climbing Mount Sneffels. Now, anybody climb Mount Sneffels? A couple of you, a few of you in the room. Um, there's there's a couple ways to get up it. One of it, one of them, you have to jeep in from the Ure side, and you get quite a bit closer, and you can head on up. That's me with some funky facial hair. Um, when I was younger. And uh, so that's one way. Or the other way that you can go up is from the Blue Lake side, where you backpack in. And this is what we did. We backpacked in. And anybody been up the Blue Lake? It's fantastic. It's gorgeous. So you go up there, you backpack in, and then the next day you get up early because the goal is you want to peak that thing as early as you can so you can get off of it because it's a 14er. And so my buddy and I, we get up, and when you're going up this route, you get a scale and scramble up the ridgeline. And it's a pretty, pretty cool spot, pretty fun. So we scale up this ridgeline, we peak it, and as we get to the top, the thunder rolls in the distance. And the weather starts rolling in. And if you've ever been on a 14er, you know you, you want to get up as early as you can and off because weather rolls in and a lot of electricity rolls in and you don't want to be up on top of the peak when that happens. And so we say, all right, well, we bail off the easier side, the faster side, which is the Ure side, um, just to get off the peak. And there's these big snow fields. So you can do what's called glissading down, which is basically you're just sliding down like a sledding without a sled, right? You just slide down. So we did that and we get down lower to where we were safe. And then we kind of waited it out because this, this, thunderstorm rolls through on the peak above us, and we had to get back up over this high ridgeline down here a little ways, and then back down to our campsite. And so we wait for a little window, and finally there's a little window in the storm, and we come back up the mountain over the ridgeline and start coming down, and the weather starts closing in again. And as we're coming down, we're hiking down this trail fast, trying to get down you know, down to lower altitude, and this lightning bolt, pow, it, it hits like right down from us, so close that it feel, it sounded like it was like literally right next to us, probably, uh, I don't know how far, but close, it's way too close for comfort, and so we crouched out, and then we just keep booking, and we're like, we just got to get off this mountain, right, and so we do, and obviously, I'm, I'm still here, I survived, um, I didn't get singed, 
But that was pretty scary. And it got pretty dicey up there on the mountain. And you know something I've discovered about mountains over the years? Perhaps you can identify if you've done any climbing. Mountains have a way of giving you perspective, don't they? I mean, both from the fact that you get up and you see the view differently, but also they give you perspective on the fact that you're really not so large and powerful as you thought you were. You're actually very vulnerable. All your tough talk seems a little bit ridiculous um, when you're trying to dodge lightning bolts up on a mountain, doesn't it? They have a way of demanding respect from you. In fact, uh, my brother uh, works search and rescue, and he has hauled a lot of people off mountains, some with with, um, good outcomes, some not, because they didn't sufficiently respect the mountain, and they went up unprepared. And most of the climbs on mountains I've done made me hopeful for when I got down and I had a nice warm meal and a cozy, you know, <laughs> cozy house or sleeping bag, a place of security, a hot dinner, maybe a cup of cocoa waiting at the end of the day. And as we move into our series uh, here into the first week of Advent, we've been in Isaiah a couple weeks, sort of, uh, you know, early start to the Advent series. But what, what we're going to see, this is traditionally the first week of Advent, and what we're going to see is a vision of hope sandwiched in the middle of these two passages of judgment. And Advent, actually, if, what the heart of Advent is about is it's us celebrating the anticipation leading up to and the arrival of the first advent or the first coming of our savior, Jesus Christ, and the fact that we live in the space in between where we eagerly anticipate his return. Almost like different mountain peaks. And right now we're back down in a valley anticipating the next peak, which is when he returns. And so at the first coming of Jesus, we discover that he is the hope that all humankind has been waiting for. In fact, in the book of Matthew, in fulfillment of one of the many prophecies that he fulfills from the book of Isaiah, Matthew says this about our Lord and Savior Jesus. It says this, in his name, the nations will put their hope. Nations will put their hope in Jesus. And for Isaiah, in the passage we're going to look at today, the hope of nations is actually pictured in Jesus as a mountain, as a mountain, and the highest of mountains where all the nations will stream. And so if you have uh, your Bibles, why don't you turn it on over to Isaiah chapter 2. And just to catch you up a little bit, I'm not going to read through it, but to catch you up a little bit on Isaiah chapter 1, we looked at it a a couple weeks ago. But Isaiah chapter 1 is the beginning of the prophetic mission that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, has been given. And he's been sent to a divided nation. At this point in history, Israel's been divided for a couple hundred years. You had the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel to the north, ten tribes, and the kingdom of Judah to the south, two tribes. And at this point, Assyria, the superpower in the region, had already hauled off most of the kingdom of Israel into exile. Still, as 
Isaiah begins prophesying. Um, the, the capital city of Samaria uh, existed and hadn't been hauled off yet. That would change in the year 722 B.C. Isaiah begins prophesying about 740 B.C. And his big message to Jerusalem, to Judah, is this. You have abandoned God and you are doomed. You did what God told you not to do um, 800 years ago when he brought you into the promised land at Mount Sinai. He said, if you get into the land and you walk away from me and you pursue all the idols and the demon idol gods of these other nations and take on their practices and abandon the one true God, I brought you into this land and I'm going to bring you into exile out of this land. In Isaiah's pleasant task is to warn the people, hey, this is coming. Hey, wake up. Hey, repent. Turn back to God because you are on the path to destruction. And so in chapter one, we we get this sort of grim, it ends with a grim message. You are doomed. And so the next words actually come as somewhat of a shock because the next words are words of hope. They're words of hope promised in the midst of a message of doom. And here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. This is what Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. God gives him a prophetic vision. It says this, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. I'm going to keep reading, and then we're going to come back to that verse. It says, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This incredibly hopeful few verses, five verses of a coming period of time, Isaiah says, in the last days, and we'll go back to verse 2, it says this, in, in these last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established as the highest of mountains above all the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Now, we started out talking about a mountain and climbing mountains, and in, in ancient history and in scripture, actually, mountains are very important. They, they had a very important place in people's thinking. In the ancient world, mountains were seen as the place that reached up towards heaven, places to encounter the divine realm, and actually oftentimes temples were built on mountains. So in ancient Greek mythology, Zeus was thought to live on Mount Olympus in Greece. Just north of Israel, Baal, Baal was thought to live on Mount Cassius, the highest mountain around there. Now, why is that in ancient history that mountains were seen like this? Well, I think it, it was a memory of Eden. Because, see, Eden, the original garden of God, was not just a garden. As you read through Ezekiel and some of these other uh, passages in Scripture, Eden is referred to not just a garden, but a mountain that is a garden. It's a mountain that is a garden where rivers actually flow out of it that water the nations around it. It is a place where heaven and earth meet. 
It's the place where God actually interacts with humanity at the mountain. And, and the original was designed is that what was true at Eden would become true throughout the world. But we know the stories. Humanity rebels, is tempted by Satan and the pride of Satan that says, I will become like God. I will become the most high. I will take over the place of the most high, essentially. And humanity, you can become like God. That's the original thing. Pride rises up in the heart, and humanity then is excluded from the Garden of Eden, kept out of the Garden of Eden. And I think there's this memory in humanity that goes back to all these different cultures of ancient mythology of Eden, of the mountain that is the Garden of God. And because of this, all, these, all this ancient mythology, um, they worship on mountains. It's my opinion. And see, mountains are actually really important in Scripture. You start out with Eden, then you have um, Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai, which is actually, um, the law is given on Mount Sinai, which is kind of a picture originally of Eden, and it's where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And then um, the temple is built on a mountain, not a huge high mountain, but it's also a mountain, also a picture of what Eden is supposed to be, the original mountain. Then you have a mountain where Jesus is transfigured. you remember that? That was on Mount Hermon, we believe, uh, which is a whole other interesting, interesting story we don't have time to get into today. So the temple, you have the temple on, on the mountain, and it wasn't the highest of mountains all around, and yet, in the time Isaiah was writing, Solomon's temple, uh, a wonder of the world, it was, even though it wasn't on the highest of mountains, there were plenty of higher mountains in the vicinity, it was still where the one true God was worshipped, where he could be found. This is the idea here. And even today, um, mountains, like we, start, we said, mountains give you a different perspective. I, I've found there's something where, um, you know, I don't know what it is. I don't think it's anything like, you know, mysterious. Maybe it's just a, a perspective and a clearing your mind. But when I go up to the mountains and seek God, I tend to quiet myself and hear from him in a different way. Maybe some of you have experienced that and as we get away from the, the craziness of, of, of life here, right? Mountains are durable, aren't they? Um, I mean, unless Jesus returns... Grand Mesa is going to outlast you and me, isn't it? It's going to out, Mount Sneffels, it's going to outlast us. It's going to outlast our grandchildren. It's going to outlast our grandchildren's grandchildren unless Jesus comes back first, right? Then all bets are off. <laughs> Mountains are durable, aren't they? They're solid. They're unmoving. And I think it's really interesting that Isaiah pictures our, our hope in the terms of a mountain, in a mountain, because that's our hope. See, in the Bible, hope isn't something you just wish for. Hope, biblical hope, is assurance based on what God says is true, on the fact that he is trustworthy, on the fact that he sees the end from the beginning. That's one of the big lessons of the book of Isaiah, hundreds of prophecies throughout it and different things that are fulfilled. And in the heart of Isaiah is you can trust. There's hope. You have hope. And so he tells Isaiah, a remnant. In fact, Isaiah names his child, a remnant will return. 
This is a hundred some years before Israel is hauled off into exile. And he names his son prophetically, a remnant will return. A little over a hundred years, uh, the nation of Judah will be hauled off into exile, just like Isaiah said would happen. And then a while later, a remnant would return, just like Isaiah said, through, God said through Isaiah would happen. And one of the clearest, during communion, we heard one of the clearest prophecies of the Messiah. And it's several chapters, many chapters in Isaiah speak of the coming of Messiah. And Jesus comes and fulfills those prophecies to a T. This was written 700 years before. See, so hope is solid like a mountain because our God is trustworthy. He sees the beginning from the end and he works things according to his purpose. Mountains are solid. Our, our hope is an eternal hope. And mountains are also a source of life. Did you know, I mean, if you've been to the Mesa, this is no surprise. Um, they call mountains the world's water towers. You know, the Mesa, all these reservoirs and all these lakes, right, that, that water literally our, our whole, you know, western Colorado lifestyle. But it's not just that. It's the networks of springs inside the mountains and rivers that come down from the mountains. 60 to 80% of all freshwater comes from the mountains. That's why in Eden you see the four rivers going out from the mountain of God. But something amazing, it says in this passage, is going to happen. It, it pictures nations and peoples as streams flowing back into the mountain. You see that? As humanity was excluded from, from the mountain of God, now will be invited in and will stream back in. In fact, this mountain, on this mountain that we see in Isaiah, something amazing is going to happen. It says the mountain of God will become the highest mountain, the most exalted mountain. As he's speaking a language. It's saying the worship of the one true God, the knowledge of the one true God, the influence of the one true God will be more than anything else in this world. In fact, Daniel, during the exile, Daniel speaks of this mountain. He, he says this, uh, Daniel's hauled away, just like Isaiah prophesied, hundred some years before he's hauled away by Babylon. And he is in the service of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has this crazy dream. If you remember it, it's this giant, huge statue that represents different kingdoms, we're told, because Daniel is given the interpretation. And in that time, Daniel receives the, the thing that really freaks Nebuchadnezzar out. At the end of this dream, there's a rock not cut out by human hands that flies at the statue, destroys the statue, turns it into dust, but this rock grows into a mountain that fills the whole world. Daniel's interpretation, the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. And here's what it means, he tells Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to have a great kingdom. And then after you, another kingdom, another kingdom. And in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those other kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it itself will endure forever. And Jesus comes and he announces good news. The kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God has come upon you. But Here's where it's different. It looks different than you expected. 
See, part of what, as we've been going through Isaiah, we've been saying part of uh, the thing that makes it hard for us as we read some of these passages. Have you ever driven up maybe from Kansas back to Colorado and you've seen these big mountain ranges and they just look like a big mountain in the distance, right? But as you get closer and closer and up to it, you recognize this isn't just a mountain, this is a range of mountains. And it's not till you get here that you go, oh, wow, there's a big journey between this peak. I got to go way down through this valley, take this journey up to the next peak and then down to the next peak. It's a journey. And a lot of times prophecy in the Old Testament is like that. From, from the perspective of the prophet, it looks squished together when you recognize there's lots of different peaks and there's distance in between those peaks. And so that's why Isaiah comes and he prophesies some things that are going to happen immediately, very soon. This is going to happen like in years and within our lifetime and then 100 years and then 700 years and then things that are still for the end of days. And so some of these things begin to unfold and he sees this picture of things happening. And this is a part of why they missed Messiah. is because when Jesus comes and he announces the kingdom of God, it's here, they're like, well, why aren't you raising up an army to defeat Rome? He says, no, actually, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's going to be planted, and, and then it's going to um, grow and grow and grow. And before you know it, the birds of all the earth are going to come and dwell. He says, it's actually like a leaven. Have you ever baked this tiny little bit of yeast goes in the bread and then it leavens the whole and it grows and grows and grows. And what's interesting today, when, uh, when this was written, you know, verse 3 says, Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we, we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. See, as you begin to read some of these prophecies, some things that begin to be fulfilled as Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. If I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says different, different things like this, right? And there's this idea, we, we refer to it often here. It's called the already and the not yet, that when Jesus comes at the beginning, he initiates the kingdom of God. It begins to grow as humans all around the world begin to to believe in Jesus and submit their lives to the king. And it will come in ultimate fulfillment, many of these prophecies, when Jesus, not until Jesus returns, will many of these things. It's this unfolding mountain peak to mountain peak to mountain peak. But the amazing thing is this, that at Isaiah's time, this was an incredibly bold claim that all the nations would come and worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because at this point, you know, worship of Israel's God was kind of small peanuts in the world, right? It was like small stuff. Zeus was much more well-known. Baal, up north a little ways, much, much more well-known. Marduk. Marduk, sorry. The, uh, the uh, Babylonian small g God, much more well-known. In fact, there's this interesting story where uh, one of the Assyrian kings, as they're coming down, they've already wiped out Israel. This is a little bit later. This is um, about seven, um, I'd have to look it up, <laughs> about 700 BC. 
okay? It's during the reign of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is a good king, and under he listens to the prophet Isaiah. He turns his heart to the Lord and the people begin to turn back. He begins to get rid of the idols in the land. It's this beautiful, bright spot in this long history of decline. And they experience God's rescue in a dramatic way as this Assyrian king comes down and he's wiped out all the other towns in, in Judah around there. And they've huddled up in Jerusalem. They've taken out one of the other power centers, Lachish. And Jerusalem's really the remaining power and that Syria comes down and they send out with all this human pride, right? They send out these envoys and they make fun of the God of Israel. They say, don't, don't, let, don't let Hezekiah trick you and say that your God, Yahweh, is going to save you. What other gods of these other nations have saved? C- come on, look around at all these, this destruction. The gods of these other nations haven't saved you. Your God's not going to save you. And they mock the one true God. And Isaiah and Hezekiah cry out to God for rescue. And it's interesting because you can go read about this in in secular history, apart from the Bible. And there's this weird gap. Normally, the Assyrian kings, they brag big time about their conquests and all of this. Well, they're set up at Jerusalem. And then when you read in ancient history, um, it basically sounds like he's like, well, we, we taught them a lesson. Because kings in ancient history always like make a big deal about how they humiliated these other people groups and, and took them down. He's like, we taught them a lesson. But the idea is we taught them a lesson, but we had to do more important stuff to do at home. So we went home. And there's this weird gap where they've just wiped out and destroyed all these other cities. Well, we're told in the Bible, in Kings and Chronicles, exactly about this time in history. And you know what happened? They cry out to God and God sends the angel of the Lord through the camp of the Assyrians And it wipes out, the angel of the Lord, he wipes out a majority of the Assyrian army in one night. And they tuck tail and run for home. And their story is, well, we we warned them good, and they're going to pay us tribute. God took them out. And you can go read about that even in secular history um, and see this really weird thing that the Bible says this is what happened. He, he lowers the pride of humanity. So he goes on. But Well, before I go to the next verse, it's a bold claim of Isaiah. But here's, here's the hope. Have you noticed that we're here 2,000 years later in a nation that nobody in this area of the world even heard about or imagined on a continent that they didn't, most people didn't even know existed. Worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God. Did you know that a third of the population of the world worships Jesus? the one who came and claimed to be Yahweh, the one true God, come in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. A third of the population of the world worships the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's incredible. And and here's what Isaiah says, is there's going to be a time when all the nations of the earth are going to stream into this mountain. It's powerful. 
Verse 4, he will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So as he rolls through this, different ways of seeing this, some of the mountain peak ideas that the nations begin already streaming back to Jesus, but it will not come in fullness till Jesus returns. And obviously this isn't true yet, is it? Have you looked around the world? Have you read the news headlines? I don't see people turning nuclear subs into gardening appliances at this point yet. But that's exactly what Isaiah prophesies. And guess what? The prophecies that have been fulfilled already, remarkable. It's coming. You can bank on it. Because the God who, sits, who, who sees the beginning from the end says it's going to happen. When Jesus returns, he brings peace. He brings a kingdom of peace when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness upon Jesus' return. In fact, we see the same mountain referred to in Isaiah 65, and it says, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. There's this beautiful, beautiful picture that's found in that passage. It talks about the new heavens and the new earth, the future hope. And in response to this solid hope in the midst of very dark times, here, here's Isaiah's call to the people of God. Verse 5, come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Come on, because you have a hope, let it impact the way you live. Come to this hope. Live into this hope. Abandon your idols, abandon your trust in all these other things that aren't the one true God, and live into the hope that you have. Come, descendants of Jacob. Anybody remember the song, Father Abraham had many sons? Yeah, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you've been grafted into that. Come on, he says to us, live and walk in the light of the Lord. Why? Because you can depend on him. Who's the light? What is the light? Well, John tells us in his description of Christmas, of the incarnation, the first advent, Jesus coming in the flesh, he says this, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He is the light. He is the hope. And you can bank on it. But before that kingdom comes in fullness, another day is coming. Another day is coming. The day of the Lord. Now listen to this, because I said chapter one, this whole chapter of doom, essentially. It's pretty grim. And here's how this chapter ends. You, Lord have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. So the question is, why? Well, he promised he was going to bring them into exile, right? And so from an earthly perspective here, it says you've abandoned them. Now we know, he says, a remnant will remain, that I'll keep a faithful remnant that I'm going to bring back into the land that will be the, the um, line through which the Messiah comes, who is the hope of all nations, who is our hope. 
Verse 6, you, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are Why? They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs, occult practices. All these wicked practices of the nations all around that worship idols, the symbols of which are not real, but there are real demonic spirits, Paul says, behind these things that people are worshiping. They demand awful things. We began the series by reminding you at this period in time, um, Hezekiah's father, King Hezekiah, who Isaiah ministered in this time, offered his son on the sacrifice, the altar to the demon god Molech. This is the culture of the time. They practice different, there's all these occult practices. Their land is full of silver and gold and there is no end to their treasures. What does that mean? They trust in human wealth. That's where their trust is in. In their own power, in their own might, in their own wealth, that's where their trust is. Their land is full of horses and there is no end to their chariots. These are the elite, high-tech weapons of warfare of the day. What does this mean? They've placed their trust in human power. In human military power and might, in human wealth, they've abandoned God and went to occult practices Demonic practices says this, their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands to what their fingers have made. So what is God going to do? So people will be brought low and everyone humbled. Don't forgive them, he says. In other words, don't just let this go. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant. See, again, the sort of the zooming out picture here, what we see of actual, the judgment that will come on Jerusalem and Judah as they're hauled into exile. But now he begins to speak of a day of the Lord that's coming on all humanity. Here's what he says. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled. Human pride will be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty. Literally, in the Hebrew, this says, for the day of Yahweh of hosts. What that means is angel armies, the heavenly host. It's the word armies. Some of the translations have the word armies. The idea is God and the true power, not human power. Just like when he comes down and he wipes out the Assyrian army, proud and arrogant, that boasts against God. There's a day coming globally when the boastful pride of humanity will be judged. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. See, here's this idea. He's going to go in this idea of competing high places. Is, is, is the mountain of the Lord, is, the, is following Jesus the highest thing? What God says about this life, the highest thing in your life, or are there other things that are higher He says this, for all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, the oaks of Bashan were known for being the place where they would do these cult, perverted actions under them. For all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted 
in that day. Everything that directly competes with the glory of God. And you know one of the primary, the primary competitor with the glory of God is pride and arrogance and trust in self. It's the primary sin where Satan rebelled. Pride. It's the thing that tempted the human heart to rise up. God says there's coming a day where it's going to be brought low. Verse 18, and, and the idols will totally disappear. People will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day, people will throw away the moles and the bats to the moles and the bats, their idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made to worship. I'm going to get rid of this stuff. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. And you're thinking, this isn't a very Christmassy Advent series, is it? I'm not feeling like jingle bells right now. See, here's the message. The same Savior who came to this world to offer grace and forgiveness is coming again. And it's going to be a very different day when he comes again. See, here, here's how Timothy, uh, Paul talks to Timothy because of these things. He says, in presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. And then he goes on to tell him, basically, I want you to live your calling. Do the things you've been called to do. Why? Because Jesus is coming, and he is the one who will judge the living and the dead. This is part, from this scripture, we, we have the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It goes on. And Jesus, he is coming to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. This is reality. This is what the scripture says your hope is in. And see, judgment um, is only a fearful thing if you do not trust in him. See, he goes on. What is the instruction at the end of this chapter? Stop trusting mere humans who have but breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? So if you're trusting in, in your wealth and your power and all these things to make life make sense, if you're trusting in your human works in order to bring you into relationship with God, think you can tip the scales in your favor by checking off some boxes, he says, no, you stop trusting in humans, in mere humans got to trust in Jesus. The one who was and is and is to come. The one who came exactly when he was prophesied. And he will come exactly when his father says it's time. Which he says, I don't even know the day. But my father does. So I've got two words for you to remember to take away from Isaiah chapter 2. And two, I'll draw it for these two verses. Verse one is this, stop, stop. Isaiah 2.22, stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? 
Stop trusting in me. What, what are you trusting in? That's the question. As we approach this Christmas season, as we enter the Advent season, what is your hope in? What does your life, the way you're living your life, say about what your hope is in? Where is your hope anchored in? What are you trusting in? When it comes to the way you approach God, are you approaching God uh, because of your, like viewing your faith kind of like a set of check boxes? If I just attend church at certain times, you know, give a certain amount, whew. Or are you really trusting in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and what he did when he died and rose again for your salvation? Are you placing your trust in him? And then when it comes to finding meaning in life, I think this is a great thing to remember in this season. Stop trusting in what you think is going to bring you joy and fulfillment and hasn't in the past. Isn't it interesting how we have a day of thankfulness and then before the leftover turkey's even like gone, the next day it's like, and now we're going to go find real meaning in commercialism. And, and I judge you for being, you know, out there at the mall on Black Friday until I saw the Sportsman's Warehouse flyer and I had to get down there. My wife's like, you want to go to the mall? No, absolutely not but I'll go to Sportsman's Warehouse. <laughs> Priorities. <laughs> but seriously, I, we did a whole series through the book of Ecclesiastes. I think it's so important to remember during this season where we think achievement, wealth, the accumulation of more stuff is going to bring us satisfaction and meaning in life. And we're on a constant treadmill and it never does what we think it does. And instead of getting off the treadmill and going, maybe I should look somewhere else for my source of joy, we just keep going around another lap. Maybe this year. What are you trusting in? Where's your trust anchored in? Stop trusting in mere humans. Start trusting in the only thing that is trustworthy. The words of our Savior the one who says what the ultimate reality is. Listen to this, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. See, this is hope, guys. This is ultimate hope. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea or presents chaos. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, listen, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. See, this is where your trust is anchored in. This is where your hope is anchored in, that in spite of the chaos of this life, he is trustworthy. He says, these words are trustworthy and true. You can bank on it. He is coming again. Are you living your life with an eternal purpose? Or is all your trust and activity and, and effort about right here and now? Trust. And the second one is this, Come. Come, verse 5, from verse 5. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk 
in the light of the Lord. Because this hope is real and trustworthy, how do you live into that? He says, come. Come to the true source of life. Later on in Isaiah, he's going to say this. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Talking about the free gift of life. It's found in Jesus. Jesus will echo these words of Isaiah in John 7. He'll say, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Are you coming to the real source of life? Not just for eternal life, but as your source of life now. He says, I've come to give you life and life in abundance to show you what life is really all about. Going on in Revelation 21. He says this, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Going back to verse 6, he says, He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. He goes on to talk about this city. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, ultimately... The hope of the season is that you and I, every person has the opportunity through faith and trust in Jesus to have their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And there will be a point in history you can bank on it when that will be the only question that really matters. What did you do with Jesus? What did you do with Jesus? And the invitation is here for you. The end of the book, um, almost the very end, Revelation 22, you see this invitation to come to Jesus, the source of life. So it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. We're anticipating Jesus coming again. And here, and let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. This is the invitation. Stop trusting in humans, in mere humans, and come to the true source of life. Would you stand? As we close here, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. Perhaps some of you, you know, you're just kind of visiting church here today um, with family. You're just in town for the weekend. Um, and perhaps you've never taken this step. But you feel a sense of invitation. The Lord is inviting you right now into the most important decision of your life. Will you choose to trust him and respond to Jesus and receive the free gift?
of the water of life. Experience, begin a journey that will bring you to experience how life was really meant to be lived. And ultimately, in eternity with him. And if that's you in the room, as we bow our heads and close our eyes, I just want to invite you to respond to Jesus right now. And you can pray a simple prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I need you. Lord, I want that water of life that you offer. I'm tired of trying to do it on my own. Would you forgive me? Would you welcome me into your family? I believe you're the son of God that you died and rose again. I want to live my life from this point on for you. And Lord, for the rest of us, would you just re-anchor us right now in the big picture that the God who said he was coming and came in the flesh for the first time is coming again. Would we begin, would we stop placing our trust in things that will not bring us life and come to you, the only source of life, and live our lives out of that for you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.